Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Uh, We're in John chapter 8, John chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11, and it is a well-known story of the woman caught in adultery, and we're going to pack that in a second, but before I begin that, I want to tell you a, a moment in my life that, you know, when you get a chance to catch someone doing something they have no business doing, you are now given a moral authority. You ever done that? You ever caught somebody? I know you've wanted to catch somebody. I, I was in college, and in college, I was not a good student. But there's, some, there's another word that could capture how bad of a student I was, but I was the guy always coming to late, always cracking jokes, always making a problem. I was that guy. By my senior year, I give my life to Christ. When I give my life to Christ, I start trying to do my homework and doing good in school. Amen? Because it should come out in the way that you live your life, i.e. school, right? So now I'm trying to actually come to class on time, all that. So I decide to meet, I, uh, to meet with the head of the speech communications department. He was, the, uh, was my teacher for one of these classes. Wasn't doing well in this class, so I wanted to do some makeup work. And I wanted to let him know, like, hey, I'm really living new now. Like, I wasn't going to tell him I was a Christian, per se, but I would be open to that. But I just wanted to tell him, like, I'm going to start doing work now, right? So I set up a meeting with my teacher, who was also the head of the department of, that I was in. So I walk in to the school, the School of Communications. I walk in, and my teacher, who was also the head of the department, was in the main office. He was in the main office. Now, the main office was across the hall from his office. Well, while I walked in, I noticed he was in the main office. I didn't want to disturb him, so I just walked into his office and sat down. So he's in a discussion. Now, we were supposed to meet about 10 o'clock. Well, now it's about 10.10. I've been sitting there. Now, mind you, I'm trying to walk with the Lord, so I was on time. I was early, so I've been waiting for about 12 minutes. I'm sitting in his office, and he's about to go from the main office, walk across the hall to his office, but right before he gets into his office, he puts his foot in the door, and he turns around. He says, Mary, guess who I was supposed to meet with today? James Roberson. (laughs) Yeah, he's late again. Yeah, he's late again, and he's, he's saying he wants to start doing his work. He, he emailed me, start, said he wants to do his work or something. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you, you know how it is. When he started turning around, I was like, yeah, I'm right here. Like, I felt that energy. Like, I wanted to give him all that work. Now, when you are in that moment, you have so much authority. Now, this man was probably in his mid-60s. I was like 21, but I felt like his daddy in that moment. Like, I was ready to just give him that absolute work. Now, I didn't know enough Bible at the time. I didn't know how Jesus would respond, but I know I shouldn't catch him and kill him. Like, that's what I felt like doing. I felt like terrorizing him. I felt like beating him up with my words, right? So I remember the conversation was kind of awkward. He was shocked when he walked in. I was like, yeah, so um, I was here. I've been here for about 12 minutes. Like I said, I want, so I started having this conversation with him. 
have you ever been in a moment where you've actually caught someone red-handed? Put it a different way. Have you ever wanted to? Mm. Have you ever imagined in your mind, ooh, I would like to be in the room while they're saying it. Ooh, I wish I was in the text thread when they were saying it. Yeah, I wish I was next door to hear it. Like, have you ever wanted to be in the room and be in the presence of people that you could catch? And once you catch them, what would you do? Oh, you'd want to slam them. You'd want to terrorize them. And you'd want to have your, use your moral authority to show them their wrongs. And that's how we are as a culture. We love to catch people. We love to execute judgment on people. It is part of who we are. It is part of our nature to want to bring people down, particularly people of power. And one of the things that Jesus is going to do in this moment, he's gonna take a person who actually has no power and he is going to do something that I want to be like. He, he's going to do something that I want our culture to be infected with. He's going to give gentle correction. He's going to see someone who is obviously in sin. And he's going to correct them in love. The Bible says that this kind of response is actually more effective. In Proverbs 25 and 15, though patient, Patience, a ruler can be, through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. So he says this is more effective when you come across with gentleness. But the Bible also says, not only is gentle correction more effective, it's also more authentic to your journey. It says in Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourselves lest you be tempted to it. Essentially what Paul is saying is don't come too hard on people who are caught because you could get caught one day too. He says it's actually, you come across with humility and gentleness to those who are caught because it's actually more authentic to who you are because you too are a lawbreaker. Here in this text, we see that the life of Jesus is gonna present this beautiful, gentle correction. This gentle correction that we need in our culture. Now, something to keep in mind, this text is, uh, it's been well disputed among scholars. Many will say, and it's been, uh, although the text is authenticated as being part of the life of Jesus, it's most likely not what John wrote or what they would say is Johannine literature. In other words, it was written maybe around the same amount of time but it was written in such a way where it's presumed John was not the writer. But because it so aligns with the life of Jesus, it's been authenticated over time. Many ways, this is how Jesus normally responds to prostitutes. It's normally the way that Jesus responds to tax collectors. It's the way that Jesus has been responding to lepers. What does this mean? That in Christ, Jesus combines perfect compassion and perfect justice. The culture does not operate with that unique combination. The culture either wants to completely be compassionate and have you live the life that you want to live or we want absolute justice. 
We either want you to do you and live your truth, or we want to condemn you with truth. In Christ, you have compassion and justice. And so you have the beauty of one who is divine and who can live this out in a way that we cannot. Now, in this text, we're going to see that the Pharisees and the scribes are going to try to catch Jesus. And it's a really unique moment because this woman who gets caught in adultery, when you look in the scriptures, the scriptures are going to tell us in Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus that this woman should be executed, that she should be killed for the sake of being caught in adultery. So over here, you have the law of Moses. But based upon Roman law, you couldn't just kill someone. That's why uh, they took Jesus to the Roman authorities to have him killed because Jews could not go ahead and kill another Jew. So you have the law of Moses and then you have the law of Rome. And so they're trying to catch Jesus, trying to decide, are you gonna side with Caesar's law? Or are you gonna side with Moses' law? So he has this tension. But the real thrust of what these Pharisees and scribes wanna do is they wanna take away his authority from those that are following him. Because you see, when the Pharisees and the scribes taught, the people would follow, but they would follow from a place of religious fear. When Jesus taught, he taught grace and truth. And so prostitutes, tax collectors, and lepers, people that would never come into the temple started following him. They thought to themselves, why is it all these people wanna hear him teach? They were the ones that were overseeing religious authority. And now Jesus is the one that has great crowds after him. What they wanted to do more than executing that woman, they wanted to execute the authority of Jesus. They wanted to execute his influence. They wanted to take away this idea of a gentle Messiah. Here, John chapter eight, verse two, it reads this way. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Now earlier, we'd been looking in John chapter seven. It was the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and you had all the people living in booths and, and, and Jesus had just taught on living water and now Jesus is teaching again and the people are following him. And Jesus now is in the temple. He's most likely in the courtyard. The way that Jesus taught, he was most likely sitting down and the people were standing up and then you got these crowd of students there. And there in this crowd, it says in chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, now y'all, this is, there's a crowd right now. And they stopped Jesus from teaching. We don't even know what Jesus was teaching on. And they come in the middle of the crowd with this woman most likely coming against her will. This is what they say. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And they say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Pharisees, from what we can text, because from what we can tell in the text, this was written in plural, so there's a bunch of Pharisees. These are the people that want to talk about how to live the law. Then you got the scribes, the scholars, they want to talk about how to interpret the law. And then you got the students, they want to learn how does Jesus understand the law. So Jesus has got these three crowds, and in the midst of these three crowds, he's got this woman caught in adultery. 
What does Jesus do? Interesting. Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, I was in the middle of a teaching session. Let me do this. Let me take you guys to the side and let me have a conversation with you about what's going on here. Let me explain this to the side. Instead, right in the middle of Jesus' teaching session, he continues to turn what seems to be a mess all the way into a message. Why does he do that? Because Jesus fundamentally believes how he responds to this woman caught in sin is still fundamentally part of his message. He believes how he will deal with sinners is at the core of his message. Now, I don't have time to get deep into this. But for those of you that want to be great leaders in Christ, for those of you that want great platforms in Christ, for those of you that want to be teachers and thinkers, your greatest lessons won't be when you're on stage. It's actually how you respond to sinners. How do you respond when that person is being shamed? How do you respond when everyone's walking away? How do you respond when there's someone broken and destitute? I'm not talking about the person you, 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 you dislike or rather the person that everyone dislikes. I'm saying, how do you respond when everyone is walking away from someone? That's just as profound as your understanding of Greek and Hebrew. That's just as profound as any platform. Jesus believes this is just as fundamentally center to teaching as anything else. What did Jesus do? It says in John 8, 6 and 7, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Again, this is them just trying to catch Jesus. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Oh, my, 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 Jesus. He a bad boy. What we understand, we don't know what Jesus wrote. We don't know what he wrote with his fingers in the sand, giving us this imagery of how the law of God was written by the finger of God. We don't know what he wrote, but what we most likely understand is that this woman who was trying to be entrapped in the law of adultery, most likely Jesus wrote down some laws they weren't thinking about. Most likely Jesus is writing down the fact that there's laws against conspiracy, the way that they entrapped her, laws against partiality and justice, laws against the fact like, yeah, where's the woman? What are, where's the man? You see, Jesus does what no man can do. Jesus looks on this moment, not with what we see, because we as a culture, especially religious culture, like to call out obvious sins. But see, because Christ is holy, he sees all sin. And so he talks not about what the obvious sin of the moment, but all the sin of the sinners in the room. And most likely he writes it down with his fingers. And there he says, he who is without sin casts the first stone. He most likely names 
the sins of those who would shame the woman. I have found that there are people who are committed to shame in the church. I have found that there are people who are committed to shame in the culture. And why does Jesus just write down the sin of those who would shame her? Because those who are committed to shame tend to have a hard time naming their own sin. Those who seek so quickly to condemn others oftentimes aren't able to see the sin in themselves. So the moment that Jesus writes down their sin and says this is what shame looks like and exposes them, they couldn't with the same energy throw stones. I find it interesting that the people that are so quick to cancel, so quick to condemn, generally aren't good in relationships. They generally aren't good because relationships take vulnerability and trust, take honesty and openness. People that need to be lawgivers can't be open about themselves and about their sin. Quick to judge, but not quick to be open. And what Jesus does is he exposes them. He exposes them to all. That's why they can't throw a stone. That's why they put them down, because they lost their moral authority to throw stones. Church, you will not be as quick to condemn when you are in your words and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit comes from his word and starts to convict you. In other words, when you are consistently seeing and confessing your sin, it's hard to jump on people. It's hard to be mean-spirited when the, when the correction of the spirit is in your life. It's just different. And when you are consistently seeing your own sin, it changes things. When I came out here, when I came to church, uh, I had shaved. And um, because my, my beard is in a season of life where it's all white, amen? The, 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 when I shaved, the, the, the hair kept coming down. And in fact, when I did this, the, the hair keeps coming down. But the difference is, is that when I came in, I had a black shirt on. And I noticed that everything I did, the hair kept coming down. So I just put a white shirt on. But the hair is still here. Y'all can't see it. I'm, every time I do this, hair is coming down. Y'all just can't see it. And, and see, that's the power of holiness. See, Jesus is like that black shirt that exposes those white hairs. He sees everything and he exposes everything. We are like this white shirt. We can only see certain things. We can't see the same way. And so you think my hair is not, my shirt is not a mess. My shirt is a hot mess. I got hair all over it, but you can't see it. But just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not seen. And in the same way, Jesus exposes the accusers because he's holy. And you will be less quick to expose people when you're in the exposition of the scriptures in your life, when it's cutting you, when the eyes of Jesus are looking on you. Jesus does this to humble them. One author said, Jesus disturbs the comfortable. And later we're gonna see that he comforts the disturbed. Jesus disqualifies the executioner. He never denies that there should be punishment. He doesn't defend her actions, but he disqualifies her executioners. John 8, 8 through 9 goes on to say, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, 
But when they had heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. I love it. It says that the older ones left first. Most likely they've been doing a lot of dirt for a long time and maybe their list of sins were a bit longer. Maybe as you get older, you get more honest. I'm not really sure why they left first, but the reality is, is that they began to walk away. The Bible says in Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Bible goes on to say in Romans 8, 33 through 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. Condemnation is this imagery of lasting judgment. Condemnation is similar to canceling. We no longer needed. And what do you see here? Jesus justifies the ungodly. He never says she didn't sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So this is good news. Church, what you have to understand is that later he's going to say, sin no more. What does that mean? That means this woman was guilty but not condemned. Guilty, but not condemned. We, you see, we don't understand that tension because those who are guilty in our courts of law, they, see, they are now condemned, but in Christ you are still guilty of your sin, yet you are not condemned. When I was in college, all my stories are from college today. Amen, amen. Probably because that's when I was doing my best sinning. But listen, um, when I was in college, actually, this is not about me. When I was in college, true story, true story. When I was in college, my roommate used to date a girl. And they used to argue all the time. And one night, I decided I'm not going to the club tonight. Went to bed. He went to the club. Went to the club, got into an argument with his girlfriend. After the club, they went to Blimpy's. Shout out to anybody that knows about Blimpy's, amen? They went to Blimpy's because that's where we used to go after the club. Those of you that know about clubbing, there's a place you go after where people chill. Amen, I know many of you don't remember that, but anyway, we went to Blimpy's after the club because that's where you went. We went to Blimpy's and they walked in. Actually, I wasn't there, but they went to Blimpy's. No, I promise you, I just made a mistake. They went to Blimpy's, right? My roommate goes to Blimpy's and gets into another argument with his girlfriend. True story, true story. Gets into an argument with his girlfriend. The man behind the counter, the man behind the counter says, hey, don't you talk to that girl like that. My roommate turns to him and says, do you have a problem? He goes, I do have a problem. True story, my roommate was drunk, jumps over the counter and beats this man who was behind the counter, the attendant, to a pulp, beats him down. Mind you, I'm asleep in my room. I don't know anything about it. My roommate comes back to our apartment, comes to my room, blood on his hands, blood on his pants, blood on his Tims, amen? He looks a mess. This is what he tells me. He says, James, wakes me up. 
take me to jail. I was like, bro, what'd you do? I thought he killed his girlfriend. I promise you. I said, what'd you do? He's like, man, just take me to jail. So I took him to jail, took him to jail. He's telling me the story, true story. He's telling me the story. And I'm just like, you did what? And you jumped over the counter? What? He's like, yeah, man. So I'm bringing him to jail and I'm like, yo, peace, man. And I'm like, you know, he goes into jail. So he bonds out. His parents come to get him, right? I think it was like two or three days later, they're gonna have the court case, right? His mama and his daddy, he, his daddy was like a deacon in the church. His mama was like over Christian education, whatever. They were really, really saved, like really saved people, right? So they're in the house and we have a prayer. I remember we're, lying, we're like praying for him before they go to the, you know, the courthouse. And he, I remember he looks at me, he's like, all right, man, it's been real. I was like, yo, it's been real, dog. Like, I don't know when I'm gonna see you again. All right, man, bye. I sit in my apartment. An hour later, they come back with Kentucky Fried Chicken, orange soda, and biscuits. They put them on the table, and they're like, yeah, and they're walking in happy. And I said, what happened? They said, you won't believe it. I said, what happened? They said, it's a crazy story. I said, what happened? They said, the man behind the counter was a criminal who was on the run from California. So when that man beat him, when he got beat down by that man, even though he was guilty, they could not condemn him because the person trying to condemn him was guilty himself. True story. You see, that's why we're not in a position to condemn because we're guilty too. And in Christ, you are guilty yet not condemned. He goes on, he goes on. And verse 10 and 11, Jesus stood up and to her, he says, woman, now I want you to see this. Look in this text. Look what Jesus does. Jesus says to her, woman, which was a sign of respect at that time, not now. Don't try it now. Woman, look what he does. He says, where are they? Jesus wants her to look around. Jesus wants her to look around. And he says, has no one condemned you? Now, I, I just, I can imagine when Jesus says, he who uh, has not sinned cast the first stone, I can imagine one was like, oh, stop. There we go. And I can imagine Jesus walks up there and says, woman. And I can imagine she opens up her eyes and he says, look around. And he says, ain't no stones coming, are there? No one's condemning you, are they? And Jesus, the woman says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I just feel like it's so important to note, Jesus takes meticulous energy to make sure she sees there's no condemnation around you. There's no one with stones around you. And it is very important to note that Jesus is still in the business of confronting condemnation. Because for every condemning thought you've ever had this week, Jesus wants to fight that condemning thought. The Bible says to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He wants you to look around in his word to make sure there's no condemnation. 
Every time you have a belief that doesn't line up with his word, there's no condemnation when you believe you're not good enough, when you believe you're not beautiful enough, when you believe you're not smart enough. There's a word for every step of condemnation in your life, but what you cannot lose and what our culture does not understand is that when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, he was not saying you're not guilty because he says, sin no more. What Jesus was actually saying is, I'm going to be condemned for you. Yes. When Jesus says sin no more, you know what he's saying? Yes, daughter, there should be stones, but they'll hit me. You know what? There should be spears launched into your side, but they'll hit me. Yes, there might be a crown of thorns that should be crushed into your head, but it'll be crushed in mine. There is no condemnation in Christ because I'm condemned for you. And I've disqualified all your executioners. Tonight, you see the beauty of Jesus and that he gently corrects us. But church, don't miss this. The Bible says there's no condemnation in Christ. It does not say there's no correction in Christ. You see, Jesus still wants to teach you. Jesus still is saying sin no more. Jesus is still placing you in a position where you can follow after him and walk in the power of the Spirit. He will not idly sit by and allow you to live a life walking away from him. He still says sin no more. And at the same time, he says, no one condemns you. You've got to allow him to be fully compassionate, yet fully just. And yet he is the lion and he's the lamb. He is risen but he was crushed for our iniquity. Allow the paradox of Christ to blow your mind this week. And for those of you that don't know Christ, because you feel like you've done too much, imagine being like this woman, caught. He still makes sure there's no stones thrown at you. And for those of you that are feeling like there's sin heaping up to the point where you can't talk to God anymore and you know Christ, He reaches towards you. He reaches towards you to know you more. And lastly, to those of you that have gotten caught up in religiosity to the point of condemning others, put your stones down. You're in no business to execute judgment. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your ways. Thank you that we are guilty but not condemned. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at BridgeChurchNYC. 
Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.